something to say. Everybody and welcome to this episode of Project Shadow. My name is Charlie. You might know me better as sci-fi fantasy writer C.E. Dorset. And today we're trying something new on the show. I've been wanting for a while to have other people on here, and I thought I'm going to do interviews. And then I thought, if I'm going to do interviews, who is the one person that has to be the first person that I interview on this podcast? And of course, it has to be the lovely, the wonderful, the queen of all streaming, Cache Warrant. <laughs> that was so extra. I love it. That made my day. Like, oh my gosh, that I needed that. That was awesome. It, it's true. You are amazing. <laughs> you have just taken over YouTube and AuthorTube recently in a way that I just haven't seen before. So let's start with just some basic questions to get my audience to know you. What kind of stuff do you write and what kind of a writer are you? Okay, well, I consider myself a discovery writer. I hate the term panther. Um, so discovery writer like sounds more like me. Like uh, my my stories take me on a journey, and I just follow wherever they go. So I love discovery writer more. Um, I am a multi genre writer. I'm trying my hand at everything just to see if I can do it. So like for example, I usually focus on like contemporary time set uh, stories, but in fictional places that I create. Um, but recently I did a horror short story that is actually going to be coming out on my blog this week that everyone is talking about (laughs) and it's like really insane and crazy and I'm super excited because I never did it before but it came out really great and so yeah so I just write whatever comes to me and I feel like I can tell the story I'm gonna try to tell it I, I I consider myself a gamer writer and I have a video up on the channel that is about that where I try to come up with kind of characters and the rules of the story and then play it out on the page. That's how I like to phrase it. I like it. that. Yeah. yeah. Cause I can't just be a discovery writer because I get lost. I will go off on all kinds of side roads and tangents and I will never find my way back. So I need to set up rules. I completely yeah. understand that. Cause like, so I tell people all the time when I was in college, I was a hardcore outliner. Like, so for anything I had to write in school, there was like an outline. I stayed to it. Fiction writing, on the other hand, writing for myself, trying to tell a story. I try outlining. I don't stick to it. I I just I can't. I try. It don't work for me. So I wanted to ask you, you've been talking about this book that you're working on. Jesus never went to college. Yes. And I am, first of all, fascinated by that title. Like as soon, that is one of the best titles I've heard in a long time. Like as soon as I heard that, I was like, I'm reading that book. I don't even yeah. care what it's about. I am reading that book. That is so awesome. Yay. So um, would you like to fill people in a yeah. little bit about that? Okay. So um, Jesus never went to college is what I've been told from other people is a contemporary coming of age story, um, which I would have never thought to call it at any point in time, but pretty much uh, it's based off of my freshman and sophomore years of college. 
and um and my lifestyle as like a child so i grew up in a very christian centered religious home and i had these thoughts and ideas about what it meant to be christian in this world when i got into college that college kind of just shattered for me and the thought process in the title and in the concept of the book is that christian children are taught that they can go through anything because Jesus went through everything. And the truth of the matter is Jesus never went to college. Jesus doesn't know what this life is like. Jesus ain't never had, you know, people knocking on his door at two in the morning because they drunk outside of their mind and they need a friend. Like, I mean, he did have a lot of things that happened, granted, like not trying to take anything away from Jesus by any means, but, (laughs) um, like, like, so for a prime example, um, one thing that I was taught was that Christian and homosexuality could not go hand in hand. And my freshman year, I was diagnosed with partial complex epilepsy. Mm. And one of my best friends in college, my freshman year, was a gay black man. And he was the first gay black man that I had continuous conversation with. And so when we were talking, I began to realize that he was just as much of a Christian, if not more than I was in the way that he knew God, in the way his relationship with God was, in the way that he carried himself. And in my freshman year, I was very, very sick. And unfortunately, there were a lot of Christians who kind of left me out to dry and left me on my own. There's a lot of that. Right. And this this gay man was in my dorm room with me every night, praying with me. He was there rubbing my back when I was having panic attacks or staying there with me when I was having seizures. And that was when something changed and clicked for me that what I've been taught about Christianity and how it is exposed to us and what I've been taught about homosexuality wasn't right it was wrong and it was from a limited mindset. And so with Jesus never went to college, I want to shatter that mindset for other Christian children who don't feel like they can talk to their parents about anything and everything. So I hope that helps to understand it a little bit. more. Yeah. That actually makes me a lot more excited because I was raised Baptist and I converted to Catholicism when I was um, 18 for a lot of reasons that are very complex. And I was on my road to joining the priesthood of all things, if you can imagine. And so, yeah, I have a lot of tangled mess of feelings where it comes to sexuality, gender, and religion. Um, the biggest one for me, you know, what okay. How do we oh, do? I left a stream going in the background. Mm. <laughs> I was okay. like, what is that me? Oh my gosh. Yeah. I left the stream going in the background because I'm smart. Um, uh, anywho, YouTube, it's always open in my house somewhere, but yeah, I, I ended up not following that path because, um, at the time I was told that my parents, well, my sister and my mother could not attend my ordination because they were women. And I don't think that that's still true in the church. And I think it was just the bishop at the time, but I, I said some choice words. Um, and so I, I deviated from my path because 
the thing that really gets me is how we use unmitigatable factors to make ourselves feel superior over others. So men like to think they're superior to women. People look down at trans people because we are going through a phase or have adopted a strange lifestyle or whatever the case may be. And I, I just, it, it destroys my psyche that people do that because I just don't, I don't understand it. One, because I don't think anybody's better than anybody else. I mean, I know the stuff I've done in my life. <laughs> you know, I, I do not have the right to judge anybody. But I, I just, yeah, there, there's a lot of that. And I think it comes down to insecurity. Because for a lot of people, a lot of not just religious belief, but belief in general has to do with getting rid of your fears. So a lot of churches tell you, if you believe these things, you won't have to worry about how to pay the bills or what happens if you get sick. Or a lot of political parties are like, if you support us, we will make you wealthy and powerful. And you can look down at those people that you want to look down on. Insecurity is something we have to deal with in ourselves and stop trying to deal with it in by putting other people down. No, I definitely agree with that. I definitely feel like um, with insecurity, there are a lot of times where we project our thoughts and our feelings onto other people because of those insecurities. And for Christians in general, whatever feelings that you have about homosexuality, sometimes it's more so your own dealings with your personal self that you're projecting onto homosexual people. And that's where the problem comes into. That's where the issue comes when you're not taking time to analyze, why do I have these feelings? Why do I have these thoughts? Let's dissect these and take these apart. Because a lot of times it requires a lot of introspection and reflection that people don't want to do. And people really don't want to enter. It makes them uncomfortable. And I say this all the time. The point at which you grow and get better is the point at which you hit uncomfortableness. Like whenever you get uncomfortable, that is where you are at the biggest point of where you can grow and change. Because being uncomfortable is change. It is, you know, it is one of those things. So I completely agree with you on the insecurity thing. I think that a lot of it is projecting. And I think it's interesting that you said that you're Baptist because a lot of it is focused on like, like one of the things is that I want to tackle with the story is that um, Christian and conservative are not synonymous. They do not mean the same thing. And in America, I think that that is the number one thing that if you're Christian, then you have to be a conservative. You have to think this way. Like, no, I'm not a conservative. Um, but I do have conservative thoughts about certain things. I do have those mindsets. And I'll tell people in a heartbeat, I don't consider myself Christian because I do not like the way Christianity is displayed in America. And I don't want to be associated. I can with that. understand that. Like, I, I think I, we also have a problem with people who tend to equate any kind of spirituality with conservatism and get really shocked when you have a spirituality and you're not ultra right wing. In our country, I think those oh, do. Oh, right. Yeah, because I'm a definitely like I, I'm a definite spiritual person. Spirituality is important to me, um, even, especially as a black person. I think it's important to our community as a whole. Like we're just a very spiritual people. Ah, I see you. <laughs> <laughs> we're a very spiritual people. And so for me, it's like 
I have my beliefs. I have what I focus on. I have what guides me. And I don't think that there should be limitations on that. I don't think that people should put what they think and what they believe on someone else. And Definitely. I feel like regardless to what you think about anything else, if you're an American, then you have to stand by that point because that is the purest foundation of what we are, regardless to how, like how far we strayed away from that, how untrue it was for everybody at that point. The basis of it was freedom to be who you are. I, I just, I've been thinking about this a lot. I think this is one of the reasons why the Hamilton musical got so popular because it's not about Alexander Hamilton or George Washington or any of those people. It's watching, using them as almost mythological characters to talk about the soul of America and everything that we've been through and everything that we aspire to be and lie to ourselves about being. And especially with everything going on in the country right now, that can be really upsetting for some people who don't want to, they think that they have to give up their ancestry or their past or whatever, because there are problematic parts of it. Look, my family is from, from the South and luckily from everything I know about family history, we fought on the um, union side of the war, but we are also, you know, founded a, a lot of slave States. I mean, we've been here, since uh, the mid 1700s, most of my, my family lines. And so by looking at our history and acknowledging that, that doesn't mean you have to throw everything out. Thomas Jefferson had a, wonderful, a lot of wonderful, beautiful things to say about freedom. He just didn't mean it for everybody. And we need to mean it for everybody. And I think that's also true when people get into whatever their religious tradition is, you know, those words are meant for everybody. When we say all people are free, all people should be free. You know, I don't want to get my preacher out because I, I have a little preacher inside me. But, um, <laughs> you know, we need to be focused on helping everybody and realizing that we are all one blood. We are all one people. And I don't know what it's going to take to get us there, but I cannot wait to read this book because it sounds like my experience <laughs> some of my experiences I, I didn't have the health issues and stuff that helped you know inspired your book but i know my i should have been in college years were mm, let's say colored with a lot of learning about the world and how the world should be <laughs> right and i feel like it's a thing that um because i've been talking about it with one of my really good friends and she is, um, she's Caucasian and she is very much so a Christian at her heart. And she sees a lot of things like even within her own family circle that don't line up with Christianity. And it's hard for her to remain Christian in how she deals with people and confront those things. And when I was telling her about the book and giving her insight on it, she was like, Cache, like this needs to be written because these are conversations that Christian parents aren't having with their children. No, they're like, not. They're not talking about these things that are happening in the world. And then these Christian children are going out to college and being confronted with these, these things. And not everyone, when they get out of their parents' home is strong in their resolve of who they are. A lot of people, Christian or not, are still figuring out who they are 
And there needs to be some conversation about that. Like, yeah. so for the story, there are four main characters and there's a Sharia cook who is the main character. And the entire book is shown through her viewpoint. But there are aspects that focus on the other three main characters who are members of her orientation group uh, for freshman orientation. Right. Okay. And so one, his name is Antonio Barrientos, and he happens to be an undocumented student. And mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about that because what happens is, is he wants to petition for their university to become a sanctuary university. And she's also a member of the BCM Baptist Collegiate Ministries on campus. Well, friends of hers that are in BCM are also MAGA believers and people who believe that they that he doesn't have a right to be here. And she gets drugged into that in the fact that she likes this dude. Like I'm writing a story and originally she's supposed to stay with her boyfriend for forever. And now she's making eyes at Antonio and I don't know what to do. And so in the story, I'm having her. I know. Right. I'm having her confront the fact that. Antonio's only has been in America since he's two. So he doesn't know anything other than America. He's just as American as she is. And so how do you how do you deal with that? How do you reconcile that information and where you stand with this person? Because you've developed a relationship with this person before they revealed this information to you. And so now where do you stand now? How do you feel that you know this about this person? And I want to tackle some real issues with my book. I do. And I want to change people's mindset. Like I want, I feel like this, if I can write something that makes you look at things in just a little bit different of a lens, then I've done my job. Yeah. that That's something I try to do in a lot of my work. Cause I feel very fortunate that when I was 10 years old, my family moved to Maryland and we lived in what I often call the United Nations apartment block because you know our neighbors downstairs were brazilian and the people to the next door to us were iranian and you know i i did not from the age of 10 to 15 i did not have a caucasian friend (laughs) because everyone around you know that lived around us was from everywhere in the world and that was so liberating and such a privilege to get to see life in so many different ways and get to help a Korean friend of mine's mom make kimchi and to learn how to, you know, I I remember being invited to a Diwali party when I was like 11. I love Diwali. I love it. Having no idea what that was, you know, raised Baptist in the, you know, in all over the South, you know, I had no idea what that was. And, you know, the candles and the lights and everything just, it, it was so magical. And I want to try at least with my work to put some of that across to people. Like the world is full of wonder. If you don't close yourself off to it, like that to me is the biggest message. If you don't close yourself off to it, I think that is super important. I love that you said that. Because, you know, growing up, you know, I was very involved in like the goth subcultures. I mean, I always date myself on this podcast. I'm 43 years old. You know, I was one of them goths in the nineties. And I still kind of am, if you can't tell from the hair and the clothes, Um, it's the art on my channel. Um, But, you know, one of the things that we all believed in was this idea that everything is, can be beautiful if you look at it that way. And so, you know, we worked hard to find beauty in everything from, you know, not just, you know, the stereotypical death and darkness and gloom and all of that wonderful dark stuff, 
but just in everything that beauty is what we are about as people. And that's what we really strove for. And it didn't hurt that we were all a bunch of artists who were drawing and painting, <laughs> doing all kinds of recreational activities that help broaden the mind. <laughs> but, you know, I, if, and if we can get any message out into the world as writers, I think that is the most important one. Keep your eyes open because the most dangerous thing that anybody can do is shut their eyes or shut their mind because you never know when something's going to come along to save you. I mean, you never know. I agree with that. I agree that you have to be open to other ideas and other possibilities because they could drastically change what you're doing and they could help you like a lot more than you realize. So I agree with that completely. I definitely agree with that. Now, I don't want to get into spoilers on her work, but you're the fifth person I've seen lately where I've been either adjacent to or in the middle of a conversation about the wonderful works of N.K. Jemison, And you said something last night on Becca C. Smith's stream that just blew my mind and recontextualized an entire trilogy for me that people who don't get the Broken Earth trilogy don't understand what it's like to be black in America. And I don't know why, and this is probably my privilege. I didn't, I don't know why that didn't click like that. Like I read it as a fantasy book and that opened, just opened me up and I'm just started rereading them. <laughs> so, okay. So it's funny because, so I've read them multiple times. And so here's what happened. So my boyfriend had gotten an article on his phone and it was like, N.K. Jemison wins the Hugo Award for the third time, first person in history. And he was like, babe, it's a black woman. She did it. I don't know what she wrote. We got to read it. And I was like, okay. And so the, the first time I started to get into it, it was so hard to get into it. I was like, what am I reading? Because I never really read a fantasy book at this okay. time. I didn't have any idea. Okay, so as a black person, it's so easy to see the parallel. Like you see it immediately, immediately. And as we were reading it, we kept saying, I wonder how many white people read this and have no idea she's talking about black people right now. I wonder how many white people are like, I love this book. Why are they doing this to origins? Why are they doing this to them? And have no idea that she's talking about black people. And so when the girl had, um, not the girl, I don't want to like say that downplay. When Jessica had said her friend had said that, I was like, I know why she felt that way. I understand why, because it's so hard to see the replicas. And so here's the, here's the, here's the kicker, right? Is that um, they're called ragas, right? Mm-hmm. And ragas are just two letters off from a very popular term in black culture. And of course, black people see it. Yeah. But, and if you think about reading the book, now think about that term and how often it's used through the book and the different ways that it's used and how it's used. And does it not just blow your mind all over again? Yes. That, that's why I wanted to bring it up with you on here today. Cause when you said that, I was like, I know I'm going to talk to Keshe about that. <laughs> Cause I love NK Jemison. I am a huge fan of her work. And as um, sensitive and open to these things as I try to be, you know, it just blew my mind when you said that because 
for some reason, when I read a fantasy book, my mind goes into fantasy mode. You know, this is a fa- this this is a fantasy book, and so I try not to uh, allegorize too much because one, either you're wrong about the analogy and the, the it doesn't quite work, or the author who wrote it, especially well-intentioned white <laughs> white writers who do analogies for race, gender, and sexuality. Oh, just please write race, gender, and sexuality in your story. Stop doing analogies, but I've done an entire series. Okay, of so I, I have a video coming out, and I'm going to just say this, okay? If you're going to write out of your demographic and you're not going to entrust a sensitivity reader with your work, don't do it. Don't mm-hmm. try to tell my story. Don't try to tell the story from a Black woman's perspective, a Black man's perspective, anybody that's Black. If you're not going to entrust someone that's Black to read your work and let you know if it's problematic or not. If you're not going to take that extra step, you don't need to write that story because that means you're not willing to do your due diligence to make sure you're telling the right story. I think people are great to do. um, I I don't ever want to tell people not to write different things, but I do want to say that if you're going to do that, respect that demographic enough to do them justice. Like, so for me, um, with Antonio being Hispanic, I'm not Hispanic. So what am I doing? I have a few Hispanic friends who I'm having read it and talk to me about it and talk about, especially my friends that are not from America who have transitioned here and the different things that they have had to deal with. Like, I want to be very clear on that. And so like what you just said, like, no, if you're going to write outside of your demographic, if you're going to be brave and do that, not saying you shouldn't, if you do, Give us the respect of hiring a sensitivity reader, of doing it. And I open myself up to that. Like, if you want to reach out to me because you would like me to read your synopsis or get anything, I am perfectly one of those people who are willing to do that because I, w- I would much rather you just push my book than try to write a Black character and do it wrong. And that's me being honest. I, I, I actually have recently sidelined an entire um, subplot in the book I'm working on right now, because it involves a Native American from a very specific um, tribe that was in Maryland. And I've been trying to talk with the tribal council and get their help to hire someone to, I, I don't want to do the whole, all Native Americans were the same and they believed in nature and fairies, you know, that trope that fills American writing. And it's been very hard to find information about this one particular tribe. And so I decided to just put that on hold for now until I can get enough information and hopefully be able to hire a writer, you know, a sensitivity reader to help me with that because I I really don't want to be offensive. I want to include them because they should be in the story because of when and where it takes place. But I don't want to write my version of how the West was won. So, yeah, that, that, I love that. that. I love that. And it, it, you know, it takes, it just takes some reflection. That's all it takes. It's a reflection. Like, Hey, I want to tell this story. I think it's an important story to tell. I think that I can do a good job, but I want to make sure I'm doing the best job I can do. Yeah. And the, it's, it's really tricky because, you know, one of the things that my, my greatest sin as a writer, and I don't know how, how long you've been writing. I don't know if you have any writing confessions yet, but my greatest sin as a writer is it took me forever to figure out my personal gender. So I have very few 
female characters in my early books. <laughs> they, they, they may be there, but they're always in the background. They're always just hidden or push, pushed away because, you know, I, I, I had issues for a very long time and my podcast listeners have heard all about them and they know. <laughs> but one of the things I think that a lot of writers should look at is their own writing because well, I don't believe that writing is necessarily therapy, though it can be therapeutic. I think we can see a lot of our own hidden foibles in our writing. Like when I go back, when I wrote The Chain, it was meant to be the queerest book that has ever queered in the history of queerdom. And when after I came out as non-binary, when I went back and read it, I realized that entire book is an allegory about my male ego trying to keep my feminine side in check. I think we subconsciously put a lot of messages in our own work that we don't see. And that can be really dangerous, especially if you're writing outside your culture or outside your gender, because you don't realize what your internalized biases are because they're so natural and ingrained to you. And that's why I'm really excited for Jesus never went to college. <laughs> I'm, I'm promoting this book like it's out and we definitely have to do this again when the book comes out because I am so excited about this book. Oh, for sure. I'm definitely gonna be like, all right, Charlie, it's ready to come out. It's ready. It's ready. I got you. Like, <laughs> let, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Cause yeah, no, I'm excited about it. I'm excited. I'm excited for the conversations that it's going to create. Um, I, I just, I don't know. Like I, I'm excited for just the process of it and finishing it and going through it and everything. And I'm excited for the person that I'll be once it's finished, because I feel like that there is going to be a change in growth that happens with completing this, because I'm going to have to revisit so many different things that I went through. And I'm just excited to see what I will look like on the other side of this book. That's an interesting thing to talk about. Just if if you want to go into any of it, the book that I'm currently working on is the first book that I've done with a non-binary protagonist. And to try to get people to understand what that means, what gender dysphoria means, I had to write several scenes pulling on my own experience of gender dysphoria. And I had to remember being in the locker room when I was in high school and those feelings and write them down. And it was very... I don't want to say triggering because that's not quite the right word, but it, it was, it brought me into a funk that was very hard to get through. Cause you know, as a writer, I don't know how you are or not, but I often feel the experiences of the characters, you know, viscerally when I'm having yeah, writing them. That is totally a thing for me. And it was both therapeutic and really hard to get back into that headspace and let myself be honest in that headspace so other people could hopefully understand that experience better. And I, I don't know if you're doing anything similar, but it, it it's a mind. So not for this current project, for some of the other projects I'm working on, I'm having to do that. Um, so uh, you watch my channel, so you know I'm really big on mental health and good self-care and taking care of your mental well-being. Um, so I go to therapy and... Uh, we are starting this uh, type of therapy where I actually write out my trauma 
And I go through it because I'm a writer. She felt like this would be a very good thing to do. And you just write it out from memory and then you just keep writing it out. But you only do it in those sessions. And part of the reason why I agreed to do this form of therapy is there is a story that I want to tell about my childhood. But I want to be able to tell it accurately. But I also want to be able to handle the mental anguish that is going to happen when I put myself back into that mindset. And so I think one, as writers and two, as people from marginalized communities, I think that taking the time to evaluate how you're going to approach these topics before you dive into them would do wonders for our mental health because it will put you in a funk and that funk could trigger you not writing for weeks to months. And that's not a good place to be in as a writer. You don't want to go that long without diving into your craft. So I, I'm definitely one of those people that uh, thinks that that can be very beneficial for you. Um, yeah, no, I definitely, I definitely agree. I am one of those people that have done that. Um, I, I, I tried to write a creative nonfiction story about an incident that happened in my childhood. Couldn't do it. Could yeah. not do it. Like tears, not so much extra stuff. It was just awful. And I, I'll be honest with you. I can't even go back and read the draft that I created of it because of the place that it takes. me. Yeah. I've got a couple of those. And um, so I, I completely, completely get that. Like, that, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to especially talk to you because you know I I know we've had very different lives but you know in some ways like I hear parts of my story in you and right now I'm in the middle of this kind of complete reboot of my career as a writer I started publishing books in 2007 and about five years ago I had an unscheduled mental health vacation that lasted for about three years and really made me have to face a lot of demons that I didn't want to acknowledge because, you know, and I've been very open on this channel. You know, I was molested as a kid. I was held at gunpoint and kidnapped on several occasions. I've had a life. And a lot of that really was stuff that I just, with that American male bravado that I used to have, just went, you know, but I'm fine now. I'm fine. And we need to open up. We need to realize that scars don't become scars unless they heal. (laughs) You know, we call a lot of these things scars, but they're open wounds. And they're just festering and making things worse for us. Okay, come through with a whole message. Come (laughs) through with a whole message. They are not scars until they heal. It's true. That is a whole message right there. Like, I... I love that. I that I just had to tell you that that line that I I'm writing that down. I might write a whole <laughs> poem about that and that'd be a blog post. Let me put that on. Oh, they are yeah. not scars until they heal. It's true because we, we have this whole idea, that, you know, I care around all these scars and you hear this all the time. And especially in the type of writing that I write you have a lot of those Byronic heroes that they're just carrying around their baggage and they're not scars. They're wounded. They're still bleeding inside. They're hurting. And I, you know, as much as I love a good Lestat or a Byronic hero like that, you know, 
you have to find some sense of healing to make it all better. And my entire process that got me to where I am now has all been all been about learning to have confidence because you know, you don't want to know how I feel when I see this face, <laughs> you know, or when I think about this body that I have, you know, I, I have studied, suffered from gender and body dysmorphia my entire life. And my gender dysphoria is insane, especially every time I hear my voice or I see my face. And doing YouTube and the podcast and stuff is so helpful because I've learned to just accept me. And you inspire me so much because I see that in you and you have, especially on YouTube, so much of a larger um, profile than I do. And you're carrying that message out to the world and people need to hear it. Be yourself. We've got all these other carbon copies of people out there. We don't need any more. We need original people. We need unique people. And, you know, you 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 are an inspiration to me, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted you to be the first you're person that I did. You're gonna make me show. cry! Oh my gosh, that's you're awesome. Um, so <laughs> so on the topic of that, so so I as an adult um, and as a child, I had uh, dysmorphia issues for other reasons than yours, right? So when I was a kid, because I had nothing but brothers and was surrounded by nothing but uncles. I wanted to be a boy. I was so mad that I had to have boobies and I had to wear those scratchy, itchy socks and I couldn't just cut all my hair off. I had to sit down and get it braided. And it, for me, was something that I grew out of because I associated male and female things with actions and not with who they truly were. And then... I realized as an adult that I struggled with it with my dark complexion. There were so many times where as a child, I wouldn't look into a mirror because I didn't want to see how dark my skin was. I always wanted to be a lighter black skin than I was. Um, In the poem that I wrote, Black Rage, there's a line where I talk about how I used to stand in the shower and scrub in my skin, hoping to lighten it because I would just get teased so much for being dark skin and people would treat me so much differently. And so not to, I don't want this to ever come off like I'm lessening your experience or anything. Oh, no, no, no. Just like how I understand it happens and it affects us in so many different ways and how it displays in each and every one of us is different. And even so, like in seeing you in the comments and learning more about you and learning more about your YouTube and um, shout out to Grayson because uh, Grayson has exposed me to things about the trans community that I didn't know. And I tell him all the time, I'm thankful for someone who is willing to have a conversation and willing to talk to people because a lot of times the issue is, is we don't know how to have these conversations. So we don't know how to do these things and how I can sit here. And even with you, when I was like, I'm not trying to listen to your experience or anything, what I'm saying, and you were like, no, I completely what you're doing. Those are the types of conversations that we need to have because that's the only way that we can open these doors so that people can understand better. And I know that Grayson um, put up a post about something that happened and it triggered a, a, a panic attack for a dysmorphia episode that he had. And when I saw it, I cried because I love Grayson. I see I Grayson as my big brother. And to hear that my big brother 
felt like that. And then to think that there are millions of people across the world who have felt like that about themselves, that's not okay with me. That doesn't sit well with my spirit. So that makes me want to learn more so that I can be a better advocate. So I can be like, cause I'm not going to call myself an ally until I know that I've learned enough to be an ally. I think that is to me, that's a triggering thing. When I hear you call yourself an ally and I'm like, you just gave yourself that title. Cause you, you retweeted a tweet or you posted a post like, no, it takes learning and learning doesn't happen immediately. Learning takes time. Learning takes growth. I, I recently uh, finished re- reading um, how to be an anti-racist. And there was so much in that book that one showed me things that I need to work on for myself, but I feel like there could be a version of that book for how to be an anti-transphobe, how to be an anti-sexist, you know, an, an anti how to be, because there's so much that we do that is, that we hope is self, that is a uh, well-meaning, that we hope is doing the right thing. And there is that fear that's always there. I, I have volunteered at conventions for, oh, I don't even know how long now. And I generally run the basically introduction to sexuality and gender panel. And people come in and we just talk about our issues. And over the years, you know, I've had to study so much because, you know, people come in and like, I remember on their fear, this one girl who didn't know that being um, asexual was a thing. She did. She didn't know that ace and arrow was a thing. And, Having to, you know, when she found that out, just watching her come back to life. Because what we don't know, we can't fix. You know, I didn't know about um, colorism until I started watching For Harriet. You know, I I didn't know that that was a thing. And we, as a society right now, are, I hate to use the word waking up because that's become such a cliche right now. But, you know, we're starting to see problems that we've ignored for so long, whether it be for race, gender, sexuality, what have you. And it's making a lot of people uncomfortable. And some of that's because they don't want to change and they're stuck in their ways. But I think it's because they feel like, well, then everything I've ever been is wrong. And the thing that I try to tell people is at least with me, I'm never offended by your questions because I had them too. I didn't know what it meant to be queer. I didn't know what it meant to be transgender. I didn't know, I didn't know what non-binary was till like two years ago. You know, I didn't know what these words were. So I understand getting them, but know that I'm a safe space to ask the questions. Not every trans person is. And that's why, you know, for me, finding ways to speak out and being very public and open so people know they can come to me and ask. And aren't bothering every other person that they meet and peppering them with those questions. It's exhausting sometimes, but it's it's extremely rewarding. Right. And I've been one of those people where I want people to come to me and feel like they can talk. And because I know every black person isn't that way, because it is a lot for people to ask you questions constantly and to have to constantly be explaining our plight and what we go through. It is exhausting. 
I'm one of those people that I understand that I feel like I've been put on this earth because I was created to go through things that others might not be able to handle go through in it. So it's my job to be able to speak to them on those things. Um, so I, I completely understand that. One last note before we um, end on this. Yeah, this is where I really want people to just reach out to one another and you know, yeah. uh, find a place in your heart. Is there anything in particular you would like to give a shout out to before we go? Um, yeah. So uh, please check out my blog, respectmyartistry.wordpress.com. Um, you can find some of my writing there. You'll be able to see Penelope's Curve, this uh, <laughs> short story that everybody's been talking about. According to Charlie, You can see it. It will be on the blog this Friday it is with an editor. Now I'm super duper excited for it. So yay. So yeah, that, that's it. Um, Definitely check out my YouTube channel. Um, I, I will be featuring a lot of different people coming up to do some collabs and things like that. So, Charlie, we're going to have to do a collab. We're going to have to I'm do down. a video. So, yeah. All right. So, thank, thank you, everybody. If you don't know who Cache is, please check her out. She is wonderful. And until next time, as we say every time at the end of this show, Black Lives Matter, Black Trans Lives Matter, say her name. And have right. fun while you're doing it. Brianna Taylor's killers are still out there, y'all. Still out there. All right. Have the fun. Bye. Bye.